This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with our co-founder and correspondent Suzanne Kreider, who has our interviews today. On this edition, Suzanne continues her series on healing a country's wounds by talking about the strategy of community building. Past Peace Talks radio programs in this little series on how a country can heal its wounds were on transitional justice, which uses legally mandated strategies like truth and reconciliation commissions or reparations. Part two focused on public dialogues, which see people willingly having conversations with each other to help communities heal. This third program in the series focuses on various other forms of community building. Communities usually share some commonality, such as a location like a neighborhood, or an interest like good food, or an attribute like a similar age or something else. Individuals in communities that need some healing find themselves in these commonality regions and they can form online or in person to cement that and then they have the potential to do something for the good of the community. Suzanne Kreider looks into some effective programs in three diverse areas of the world that challenge everyone to bring their best to help improve the mood of a place and find common ground with each other to heal. And she begins with a chat with Dr. Evis Garcia, Assistant Professor of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah, about their asset-based community development approach. They've labeled it ABCD. This is a very clever acronym, ABCD. Evis, what does that stand for and how does it promote healing? So ABCD is um, asset-based community development and it is um, a way of looking at the assets of um, communities and it promotes healing because uh, often when especially when we have like institutions being nonprofits but also governments and uh, the academia at times we have looked at communities as deficient and a lot of the philanthropic work actually asks for grants and studies to see what is lacking with communities, in particular low-income communities and I might add communities of color oftentimes and we have, in a way, made these communities um, victims when we should be looking at them as uh, having great assets. So ABCD, in this way, promotes some um, healing because I feel that a lot of these institutions have been labeling people in the community, labeling them as um, people who are homeless or people maybe like single mothers, um, just youth that is at risk. And there's many ways that people are labeled in communities. And um, in that way, we're making them victims, right? So ABCD is about not looking beyond that to what everybody can contribute to their community, even people who might be experiencing homelessness or like um, young people, mothers, 
um, people that might have this uh, disability. Um, so again, it's just about what can they contribute to to their communities. You do asset-based community development. So what are a few of the assets in particular that really help promoting peace? Um, so in the world of um, ABCD, we actually talk about six assets. And I might say that I think all of them then contribute to peace, but I will tell you what are the six assets, right? So the first asset is uh, individuals. And these are like all people in, in the communities. The first asset, the second one is um, associations. And what are associations? Well, associations is any um, few individuals that get together. It might be a walking group or a, a book club, um, any cultural group, any group of people that get together because they care about something, they have an interest um, in common, and they get together. And then we have like institutions. So it's thinking about the same organizations that I was talking about, academia, um, maybe like uh, philanthropies and nonprofits, governments, um, all of these institutions thinking about libraries, schools, right? They contribute um, to our community. So we have the physical space. We have um, exchange, which is the economy, but also thinking about um, barter and trade, um, as well as like culture, stories, and histories. You do a lot of work with Westside Leadership Institute, and you only mm -hmm. teach workshops there in Spanish. So this is part of the community building that you do, and it's in Salt Lake City. For example, mm -hmm. can you tell us a success story of some community on the west side of Salt Lake? So the west side of Salt Lake City, like many other cities, is divided by a highway. And um, in I-15 I uh, divides the east and the west of the city. And in the west side, that's where you have more industrial uses. Um, and I might add that there's a lot of environmental injustices because of that in the west side. More industrial uses, um, rail, and um, this area is like lower income. A lot of um, immigrants have been moving to the west of Salt Lake City about this area is about 50% Latino and about um, one-third immigrant. There was a community leader, someone that went through the Westside Leadership Institute, that she was interested in talking about positive stories of the Westside, because a lot of the stories of the Westside were about um, crime or poverty or negative things. So she wanted to um, highlight the great things that were happening in the west side um along with like great um 
people in the in the west side and different community projects so she started a newspaper that's called the uh, westview media and um it's a pop a newspaper that I, I, it's actually like uh, if you move to to the west side you will receive it <laughs> even hmm. if you didn't um sign up for it <laughs> you will get this like newspaper <laughs> And it is a bilingual um, newspaper and it is highly successful and it has been the best place to communicate these um, ABCD stories because that was also the the framework that they were um, using for this um, media. Evis, there are lots of these online social networking sites that really kind of promote neighborhoods. What's your opinion of doing this online? That's a great question <laughs> because we know that there's a large digital divide and that not a lot of people are able to um, access tools on online. And I say this based on my experience also working in the in the west side when i do uh for example community surveys um the difference is is quite striking if you do something online it tends to be people that are higher income people that might be wider people that are also um older so I think that it is a good strategy to do online, but never forget about the importance of like reaching people um, also in their homes, like with this like newspaper, the Westview Media, um, but just also in public spaces and um, just in, in, in their community, in, in parks um, and any other place like the library, the schools, it's, it's important to always have a dual strategy of like how to reach people in community. So you can make sure that you're not leaving some people um, out of um, whatever you are trying to accomplish or do. Let's talk about rich people because it seems like most community building is focused on low-income communities, but there's lots of rich people who are like isolating in their homes and they're not really connecting at all with community. So is this true? There is more of a focus on building communities with low-income people? I would not say that uh, necessarily asset-based community development is uh, focusing on low-income individuals. Um, I will say, however, that uh, personally, uh, I am more interested in low-income communities and communities of color because that's my um, expertise. But I have had the opportunity um, of also working, especially with um, different studies of like older adults, regardless um, of income. And I have to say that, um, well, uh, doing this study, I could see, especially because of COVID, that a lot of older adults um, have been isolated 
and um, that again might contribute to loneliness and and depression and that is very important to build communities um, regardless of um, people's income. Well, I don't mean to be harsh by using this term because I've seen a really kind of pleasant explanation of it, but it seems like that the um, community building I've been involved with was kind of a hot mess. And I see that hot mess can be defined as someone in obvious disarray who also mm-hmm. remains attractive. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so it just seems like, you know, I, I wonder if that's sort of like a quality because you're bringing together all these people with different views. So, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that's something that often happens where people just feel like it's kind of a mess. So they don't want to be involved in community building. Um, I could see that sometimes there's conflict, right? <laughs> yes. And um, these things, because, you know, somebody wants to, um, I don't know, demolish um, their Walgreens, where are going? they're going to get their uh, medicine and they're going to build an apartment building. And, um, you know, this is a space of um, people discussing things that are happening in the neighborhood. And some of them are in favor, some of them are, are not. Um, so, yes, at times it could be um, very um, agitated and political. So I think that there's a lot of like polarization if you're making things um, political that people are making or are taking sides, right? Um, but it depends the group that you're um, part of, right? I have seen other cultural groups or other groups that are like uh, parents interested in their um, children education um other groups are like zumba groups right and just maybe mm-hmm. dancing or exercise mm-hmm. or walking groups <laughs> so there's a lot of less disarray <laughs> in those uh, types of of groups i think that you know the key about associations according to asset-based community development or abcd is that you find people that are interested in the same things that you are, right? And that you care about something in particular and that brings you together, right? Um, right. Maybe some people get together because they both love drama and that's, you know, <laughs> what they need. <laughs> so, Eva's for our listeners who want to try asset-based community development, Maybe they want to try asset building or asset mapping. So yes. what's yeah? What's something uh, like a small group? They might get a few friends. What's something they could do to do asset mapping? The important thing is thinking about what what is an issue that we can um, tackle together um, or simply share um, with each other, and that might be just conversation, right? Maybe we're all interested in building community. What does that mean? Let's ask some questions about it and get together for coffee and just talk about our experiences. And um, the idea is that by starting conversations and listening and seeing what people are passionate about, um, you can then start to uh, plan to do a project or do an initiative that can be a great contribution to your neighborhood. 
it's true. It seems like we or human beings kind of create these communities like, oh, you're homeless. And I've heard some people who would be called homeless say, I don't want to be called homeless. You can call me unhoused. So it's a different term, but it's still a label. And it seems like labeling is like a simple way to create a community that might not really exist. Like, I don't want to be lumped in with old, white, you know, gray-haired ladies, but I would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a a great point that all these are... um labels right and they're more like of a simplification but they might end up being stereotypes right and might have like all these like bias um marginalization discrimination inside of 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 them right um so but i think that if you start seeing people as as individuals maybe you can get away um from that but i definitely understand um your point it's uh, labeling is something that that we do and how we get around it um, it's a great question that's Eva Garcia assistant professor of city and metropolitan planning at the University of Utah you can hear much more from Suzanne's conversation with Dr. Garcia in the complete interview with Suzanne at our website peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com we'll have another ground up community building story when we return right after this short break It's Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts or other podcast services. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today it's part three of our mini-series on just some ideas of how nations can heal wounds from various traumas and divisions. This time, the micro-work of individuals helping in their own communities with commitment and innovative programs. Suzanne Kreider talks next with Julie Garrow, of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. She's been executive director of the Cheyenne River Youth Project ever since it was born in 1988. Suzanne asks her how the project helped handle difficult issues there. Julie, tell us your nation. Um, I am a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. I'm from the Minikoju Lakota Band of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. And you're the executive director of the Cheyenne River Youth Project. So before we start talking about the project, give us, uh, like, paint us a picture of the Cheyenne River Reservation, like where it is, the land it's on, and how many people live there. So the Cheyenne River Youth Project is located in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. 
Uh, it is a community of about maybe 4,500 people. It is also the governmental center for our uh, the Cheyenne River Reservation. The Cheyenne River Reservation is approximately 3 million square acres. And within its boundaries, you have Eagle Butte, kind of in the center of it. And then you also have about 17 or 18 outlying smaller communities that um, find their way into Eagle Butte to do business with our tribal government. The Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe is located, or the reservation is located on the north central uh, plains of South Dakota. So if you were to look at our state capital on a map, you would go straight north about 90 miles and that's where you would find Eagle Butte. And uh, we are bound, um, the reservation is bound by the uh, Cheyenne River and the Missouri River. Tell us a little bit about the physical plant, like the buildings and the programs you offer in the in those buildings. You know, so there was this old bar on Main Street called the Little Brown Jug. And it was kind of the first, I understand it was one of the more notorious bars in town, but it was almost the first building that you were greeted by when you entered Main Street. So our tribal uh, chairman at the time decided that's not a really good way to be, greet people. So he, they bought the building and they offered it to the community. So uh, proposals were presented and they accepted our proposal to turn it into a youth center. So from that point forward, we began working towards building a safe space for kids. And I can tell you, I did not know what I was doing. So we have a campus now. We have a, the main youth center, which we rebuilt and opened in 1999. We have the teen center, which we opened uh, in 2006. The main youth center has an activity room, a kitchen, volunteer living quarters, a little library, a little, um, I think it's a computer lab and art studio combined. Um, the teen center, which is about 26,000 square feet, has a dance studio, library, classroom. It has a art studio, office spaces, volunteer living quarters, has a gymnasium, a fitness center, and then a big warehouse. We just broke ground to build a, um, it's called the Wainia Tuawapi Lakota Youth Arts and Culture Institute. It'll be about 9,000 square feet where we will continue to develop our arts and culture programming. We have a three and a half acre art park where you will find, you know, paintings and graffiti and expressions of, of young people and people from throughout the communities and elsewhere. We have a two and a half acre organic garden where we take food and we serve the kids, we share it, we process it, we sell it. Uh, we have a very strong social enterprise components. We have a cafe and coffee shop, a food truck. We have a, a gift shop. Now we have an online store, so you can go there and support us that way. So in the matter of 33 years, we, we have built a campus that is 100% dedicated to our youth development. So regarding community building, because this program we're doing is about building community, tell us a few successes the Youth Project has done that's built community. 
So, you know, I think that the Shine River Youth Project is a really inspiring story because, you know, we come from an impoverished area and I'm very aware of not saying poor because I don't believe we are poor. I think we have a very rich uh, culture and language revitalization and cultural reclamation. All those things are happening here. Our music is strong. Our ceremony is strong. So I'm very careful about not using the term poor, but we are an impoverished community. And I think it's very difficult to find resources that um, that can be brought to our community because the one of the most important things is that, you know, the reservations and all that happened, the forced assimilation, the termination policies, all those things, the boarding schools, you know, that was all extremely painful and hurtful history. And we're still living out the, the trauma from that period of time. So, one thing we know is that in order to reclaim our health and our wellness, not just I'm talking about physical health, but everything, is that we have to be responsible for making our own decisions. We have to be responsible for deciding what works for us. So when I talked about resources and bringing those resources to our community, you have to find partners and allies and funders and volunteers and people who believe in what you believe in is that we are capable, that we are responsible for our own futures. Now, that being said, one of the things we also have to keep in mind is that we are still dealing with the horrors of what happened. You know, we're talking about the um, the residential boarding schools, which really in the end were nothing more than concentration camps for our people and our young children. So, you know, let's not sugarcoat that <laughs> at all. So, you know, we're still living with all those, all those uh, tragedies and trauma. And so we have to work at that at the same time we're trying to move forward. So you mentioned things like language, culture, music. Talk about specifics that the Shine River Youth Project does around those issues. So I think that the one thing that we will, uh, that we always think about when we do the work here at the Shine River Youth Project is that, you know, we work primarily with Lakota youth. That being said, any young person who lives within the boundaries of the reservation, whether you're native or non-native can come and use our services, be enrolled in our programs, because I think that that's community, that's healthy community. So, but what we do every single day is that we remind ourselves, we remind the kids in all of our programming, we're reminding them about who they are as Lakota people, that it's a good thing to be Lakota. So whether you're talking about arts or whether you're talking about wellness or you're talking about even social enterprise, we're reflecting our values as Lakota people. You know, one of the things that, you know, you will find many programs and you will find many people who operate with this idea that, you know, discipline is like you tell kids, no, you say no to this or you say no to that. But, you know, I think for us for many, many years and how I would rather approach it is that we have our Lakota values and we have in that toolbox all the values that we need to have a good life. So whether it's, and you're going to probably ask me, what are those values that I'm going to forget right away? I can't name them all, but, you know, whether we're talking about, um, we're talking about generosity or wisdom or courage, uh, honesty. Those values are the things that we talk about with our kids. 
So, you know, let's, kids are kids. Kids are going to be growing up in a sometimes very crazy situation. And, you know, they come here and maybe they decide that, you know, well, we're going to just go ahead and take this. It's not mine, but I'm going to take it. That happens. That's real. Um, you know, we could do a lot with that. We could, you know, call the police. We could do all that. But I think the more important thing is that we talk to our kids and we say that wasn't wise. That isn't courage. That isn't a reflection of your who you are as a Lakota person. And it certainly does not um, honor your ancestors. You know, the one thing I think we always talk about is our ancestors, that we stand on the shoulders of those people who throughout all of this history, governments and other people have tried to destroy us, wipe us out, end us, assimilate us. But yet we had courageous ancestors who survived. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to honor that and we need to thrive and we need to use our values and we need to get better. But you know, it's tough. It is tough for our kids because they're growing up in a really, really crazy world. So the folks who've been volunteers, they've learned to stop racism, I hope. But what else have they learned about healing? Like they go back and what do you think they've learned how to bring people together? I think that, you know, I, I don't know if you label it stopping racism or if you label it healing or you give it, put it into one of those little boxes. I think what they're doing just by serving each other, being kind to each other, you know, respecting another people that, you know, many people don't know anything about indigenous folks they have ideas from books from centuries ago you know they have people there are people who think that we don't even exist anymore this helps to change that so we're only one piece of educating the world and you know i think that that's peacemaking i think that's healing i think that's sharing i think we open doors and i tell my volunteers and groups who come feel free to ask any question that you want because I want you to leave here knowing. I want you to, I said, don't worry if it's offensive, ask it so I can answer it and that you leave more knowledgeable and I've shared something with you. And hopefully we're both better people for that. I can't do anything about that except I continue to try and I continue to talk to people and make sure they understand that we are here, we are present, we are First Nations, we were here first, you know, one of the things that's becoming a lot more um, trending is um, when you are at a conference or you are doing a Zoom call now, that's more what it is right now, you know, they will acknowledge the ancestral lands of where they stand. And that's really a beautiful thing that's happening more and more. That's truth and reconciliation. Okay. And it's a small thing, but it means a lot to, because you're saying these people were here. And you're also acknowledging that the lands that, that were taken, you know, in monstrous, horrible ways uh, was illegal. And, and you know, if, if that could still happen, people, I think, still would, because that idea hasn't really left how people think to some degree that we can just take. Right. I think of you as like a catalyst. 
And it seems like a lot of community development needs a person who has the momentum to get things going or has a person who's a catalyst. So tell me if you agree or disagree with that. And, and then, so if you all are the catalysts, how do you train your staff to, you know, not call the police or just allow the kids to be kids? Well, you know, the reality is there are times when we have had to do that. I can't say that we don't. But I think for all of us who are here at the Shine River Youth Project, we're all community members. We're all Lakota. And we understand our community and we know where we're coming from. We know the challenges that we have. And we don't say, oh, let's ignore them. We know they're there. They're very present. Because the one thing you have to remember is that the people we serve are our family and our friends. We don't go home to say, oh, I'm done for the day. I don't, those are my clients. I don't have to think about them until tomorrow. We think about them every single day. And that's why it's really even more difficult because those are our relatives who are struggling. These kids are our, our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews, and it's hard. So we would rather try to figure out a way to talk with them and, and also talking with them before they get into trouble, reminding them, you know, who you are. So, you know, I think that that's, I don't think it's really anything I have to do. What I have to do is make sure that we apply it in a healthy way, because sometimes there are times when consequences beyond what we can do are necessary. That's reality. What I try to do with my staff is what should we do? How can we help? And that's the way that we all approach the work here because we're all tribal members. We're all community members and we love our relatives. You know, there's that phrase, which is a concept of our indigenous people. And it says, we are all related and that's very true. Community is so important to us. And I can't say that it's all healthy, it's perfect. We're doing it all right, but we're doing it. In terms of community building, some people say, you know, you have to share a struggle. Like I'm thinking of like the military shares a struggle or if you're on a sports team, it shares a struggle. So do you agree or disagree with that's an important component of sharing a struggle? You know, we have a we have a really very sad, unfortunate story where, you know, we have lost many children to suicide. That is a shared tragic event or events. We have food insecurity. That is a community issue and we are trying to address it. We have struggles with meth in our community. There's no way you can separate anything and say that's just one event or one occurrence. It is a community event. When you lose one child, the community loses. When you lose somebody to alcoholism or meth or a car accident, that is a community occurrence. And we all suffer. We are all related. It's inseparable. So I guess the answer is yes. 
for the listeners who really want to get involved somehow in youth projects, community development, what's a first step they could take in their own community? I think the one thing you want to do is you want to get onto somebody's newsletter and you want to find out what they're all about. I think another thing you can do is maybe talk to people and say, hey, I know about this youth organization. They're doing good work. They need volunteers. They need supporters. They need allies. So if you are, you have a roof over your head, you have an income, you are, you are so doing so well compared to so many people right now who are struggling. So if you don't support us, support, you know, there are just people who have needs and kids deserve to not be hungry and they need a good warm coat. They deserve to go to a school system that honors their indigeneity or, or if they're a person of color, you know, they deserve that. So, you know, maybe there's policy work or advocacy work that you have the capacity to do. Maybe that's, you're a lawyer. Maybe you want to offer your terms for women who are in abusive situations and need to get away, but take what your skill set is and use it to help people. You've been given that by a creator. So how nice if you can help somebody else out. Julie Garrow of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and longtime executive director of the Cheyenne River Youth Project. You can hear more from her in the complete interview with Suzanne at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for the October 2021 episode. We head to the other side of the globe for our final community building guest when Suzanne Kreider and I come back after this short break. You're tuned in to Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls, the series producer. And today it's the final episode of Suzanne Kreider's three-part mini-series on ways to heal a country's wounds, this time through community building on the grassroots level. Certainly the example set by Shani Graham is worth looking at. She's the creator of sustainable, resilient communities in Western Australia, such as one known as Echoburbia. And we're literally going to the other side of the world with our Zoom call this time, Shani speaks with Suzanne from Beaconsfield, a suburb of Perth in Western Australia. Shani, in your TED Talk about leading a sustainable living revolution on Hulbert Street, you said that you really got started on the idea when you and your partner Tim took class. Class is called Living Smart. So, Tell us a little bit about the topics in that class. And then I'm curious, was it really about individual change or community change? 
Thanks for starting in such a beautiful way. Living Smart has been a big part of our lives for a long time. The course covers 10 topics, living simply, waste, gardening for food, gardening for product for biodiversity, uh, transport, power, energy, healthy you, healthy home and community. And the idea of the course is that you do a bit of learning with people and the group actually decides what they would like to learn about. Each week you set a goal for yourself saying, I am going to take make some changes. And then at the end, we tend to build in that community aspect at the end, once we've worked on some of the things people might make changes on in their own home. So they might start saving water, they might start saving power, they might start thinking about how they're living and living in a simpler way. And then at the end, we tend to go, okay, we've done these things in our own home, what could we do in our local and perhaps our wider community? When you all lived on Halbert Street and you did this sustainable living work, one result was people in the community started talking to each other and they built stronger relationships. Now, I know you can't tell us the whole story because it's massively positive, but tell us a couple sustainability actions that you all did that really helped to build community. Okay, a couple of simple things we did. We ended up... We started with one house with solar panels on the roof. By the time we left, 75% of the homes had solar panels. We managed to have two share car schemes where we had an old ute that four families shared so that they didn't need to necessarily have a second or third car in the house and they had something that could carry big, big, um, you know, bits of wood or whatever it was they needed to collect. And we also had an amazing increase in the amount of food that was actually being grown on people's verges. So we started with, I think, two families that had some sort of food growing out the front of their house, up to about 50% by the end of the time that we left. So those were sort of little changes that we made. But I think you articulated well that one of the main things about it was actually the connections that people made so that when something happened that we needed to work together, like a burglary or a big Holbert Street sustainability fiesta, we had those connections that were there to be able to do that. And that was turned into quite a powerful um, movement and process that meant that we could do incredible things, and we did. Yeah, I think the last year you did the fiesta, it was like 7,500 people. It's like a walking sustainability market kind of thing, but the whole community was involved. But I'm guessing that not everyone was happy about that. They say that to create a cultural norm we tend to think you need about half the people. So if half the people are thinking something, then that becomes the way that people think. But it was a revelation to me to find out that you don't actually need that many people. You need between 15 and 20% to be doing something actively and others to be looking on and seeing that as the way they should be acting. 
So we were able to create a norm of sustainable living and connection with your neighbours. And yes, there were people that weren't involved in that or weren't interested in that. But we were able to actually be very strategic about how could we involve them. And that's why I like this hyper-local community idea, because you are working with the people that live around you and you work really hard with each of those people. The norm became that everyone do something for the fiesta. And we had one family who didn't want to do that, but they could see that everyone else did. And so their contribution to the fiesta was actually to go away for the weekend. So they kind of got out of the way with their negativity and consciously went, we'll we'll go away and let you get on it because we can see that this is something that the majority of people are into. So I just keep remembering 15, 20% is two out of 10 people that we have to get involved rather than thinking it needs to be half or more than half of the people. It makes me wonder about the boundaries that we set around community, like you're in or you're out. Like, okay, let's say you have a Siamese cat. So you're in the Siamese cat owner community. And if you don't own one, you're not in that community. So that's a boundary. So my question is like, um, well, should there be boundaries in communities? Well, I think there's two different types of communities. So There's the Siamese cat community that has a boundary around it and people go, it might be a community garden, might be a sports club, might be a school, and there are people that are attracted there because of a common interest. And often those groups talk about being inclusive, but they're usually inclusive of people who actually come. My passion, not to say there's anything wrong with communities of interest, But my passion is about communities of geographical location. So at the moment, my geographic community is a group called the West Beaky Bunch. And we've drawn some lines around the major roads where I live. And we've said those 350 houses are the geographic community that we're going to try to develop. And I like that sort of community from a sustainability perspective because to make sustainable changes, you need to be connecting with people. And I like it from a resilience perspective, because if we have something that causes a shock, whether that be some sort of extreme weather event, or whether it be um, some sort of economic collapse that happens quite quickly, or whether it be COVID, we are going to get the support. And it's been suggested that that support in the immediate 48 hours, comes within a kilometre of your house. Shannon, you and Tim have moved. You're no longer on Hulbert Street, but you're nearby. You're at the West Beaky Bunch. Plus, you run Echoburbia. Echoburbia is like several things in an urban, shared, sustainable house. So combining those two, West Beaky and Echoburbia, What are a few community actions that you have done that really promote healing? 
Okay, that's an interesting question. So ecoburbia is a few things. It's a alternative to urban infill. So rather than build a big house in the back of our large block, it's a thousand square meters. I have no idea how many square feet that would be. Um, we have chosen to divide up the house into small living units. So we have smaller places that people can live and it's left off with enough room at the back to have a sort of an urban farm. So we have a big veggie patch, we have goats, we have chickens, all within a very urbanised suburb of Beaconsfield. We've also renovated the house for sustainable living. So we have very complex power systems and water systems, which means that our footprint, especially given the number of people living here, is greatly reduced. We run courses from here, so that extends out into the sort of wider community. And we also run community events like concerts and movie nights, um, talent shows, um, and we've divided, devised a spot in our house where we can actually seat probably about 120 people to be able to have those activities. So the West Beaky Bunch is not an official group of any description. We knocked on the doors of 350 houses and we said, who'd like to come to a picnic? During the picnic, we said, what sort of things would you like to do together as a group of people and what should our name be? And that's where we came up with a whole pile of activities to do over the next year um, and that name of West Beaky Bunch. Some of those activities were really easy to see as sustainable things like someone growing food on their verge and inviting seven of their neighbours to come around and do that. We had a native tree planting session at an old block that didn't have any trees on it. Um, and some of them were more subtle around getting kids to know each other so the neighbourhood was safe so that they're now able to walk from one house to another because they know and the people know the people around and it's made it safer. And that means they can explore in a way that is more open and more productive for, for them. And then we've organised a lot of activities that help people with their own mental health, whether that be seedling exchanges or craft nights or games nights, things that allow people to draw together. And COVID certainly was a good test of that for us. The US could really use some advice from Australia because these days lots of people in the US are like afraid you know, they don't want to go out. They feel that promoting peace means either staying in their home and not interacting with people, or it might mean only hanging out with people who share their views. So what would you say to them to give some advice? I, well, I think that there are always activities and things you can do regardless of whether people have the same views. So that's what tends to happen in the community of interest. You go along and people share and they've got some of the same views together. Whereas if you organise a picnic in your local park, you don't need to worry about people will come no matter what their views. It's not like they're only going to come 
if they believe in immunisation for COVID. What happens is they discover the things that they have in common rather than the things that they have that drive them apart. So the next activity we're doing with the West Beaky Bunch is a pet parade. And I know that there are people who walk their dogs that don't get on with each other, but I also know that they all love their dogs. And so they're all going to be coming to the pet parade and they're all going to be able to be enjoying something together and recognising what we have in common rather than concentrating on what we have apart. Yeah, it reminds me because I watched several videos on your website, Echo Burbia, and your partner, Tim, says something like, people want to belong, but don't know how. Yeah, I think he nailed it. I think he nailed it with that comment. Um, and I think some of the activities that I'm passionate about kind of show people how they might be able to connect in that way by providing a example and providing a way of them actually leaving their house to try something. I would say, though, that it doesn't really matter what you do. Every community is going to come up with creative ways of getting people involved and active and you don't have to follow the recipe of the West Beaky Bunch or something that was done in Holbert Street or even anything you might sort of read in a book. The idea is to gather all those ideas and kind of put it out to people in a way to say, these are some of them, what do you think? And I had forgotten how powerful that is until we had the picnic and we just had that bit of paper up on the picnic that said, no politics, what could we do together that's fun? It seems as though you've been a catalyst. For example, on Hulbert Street, you got folks together. Now you're seems like you're the momentum for the West Beaky Bunch. How do you maintain an open, peace-promoting view? Um. I always talk about delegation and trust. So, look, I am the catalyst for some things, but I also am pretty good at delegating. I used to be a school principal, and if you don't learn how to delegate as a school principal, then you're going to be in trouble. And I also say if you can't get someone to take on a job that you've asked them specifically to do, then you need to make the job smaller. So I might have someone who says, yep, I'll organize a soup and slice night. And then she comes to me and says, I've never actually organized anything before. So we sit down and we write a little list what needs to be done. And I say which bits I can do. And she says which bits she can do. And she goes off with me trusting her and her feeling that level of trust from me. Um. Mm -hmm. And that style can lead because it does, there's that catalyst idea. It can lead to a bit of a crash if the person leaves. But I kind of think of those crashes and rising from the ashes again as what happens in nature anyway. So if my enthusiasm wanes and it doesn't just keep going at this pace, I kind of say, hey, that's okay too. And I think that's okay in a whole group of people that have a committee. 
Yeah, a friend of mine who works in environmental issues said like 30 years ago, oh, it's too late, but we can't stop trying. Yeah. What do you think about that? For me, a little bit like your friend, it might be too late. And we're moving from abatement into preparation, I think. Um, and I think in those in that situation, we are going to need to have connected geographic communities even more so than we did under a phase where we hoped we could abate an issue or abate climate change. In a video, I heard your partner Tim say that one thing that happened on Hulbert Street is that there sort of be a breakdown of these concepts of people owning stuff like this is mine and that's yours. Why is that breakdown and that idea important? It's important for so many reasons. From a really practical perspective, we are going to have a problem shipping stuff around the world like we do now. So if five people can share a lawnmower it means we are using less resource to make lawnmowers. If we can take back the idea of common spaces and even land that people are willing to give for common um, uses, it brings back a sense of community and a sense of civic responsibility and a sense of self-responsibility. If you can buy things together, like the pizza oven that we bought in Holbert Street or the ute that we bought in Holbert Street. It teaches people how to manage shared resources and that might mean that they're able to do that when it comes to sharing a car or sharing an office space in their house. They're able to negotiate who's going to take care of this, who's going to pay for that, together in a small way with people who might not do it in a community of interest. So for so many reasons, whether it be sharing resources and learning skills about sharing, whether it taking on the civic responsibility of public and open spaces, or whether it be actually sharing resource so that we can use less, which we're going to need to do into the future. There are just so many reasons why sharing is important, whether it's sharing resources, whether it be sharing skills, whether it would be sharing, oh goodness, each other. <laughs> you can hear more from Australian community organizer Shani Graham and from all of our guests in our complete interviews with each of them at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com and look for the October 2021 episode. You'll also find partial transcripts of this and all of our episodes, pictures too, and links to many other sources on the topic of community building. It's also where you can make a donation to our little nonprofit organization that's managed to keep this series going since 2002. We also get support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund and some of the stations that carry our program, which graciously donate to us as well. We're all doing this together. I'm Paul Ingalls for Suzanne Kreider and the rest of our team. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.